This episode of Radio Drama Revival is brought to you by Audio Fiction 101. The people who brought you Wolf 359, Zero Hours, and Time Bombs are teaming up once more to bring you Audio Fiction 101, a new course that teaches you the ins and outs of writing an audio drama and then walks you through rigorous exercises to solve narrative challenges in audio. Gabriel Urbina, Sarah Shackett, and Zach Valenti have combined their hard-won wisdom into three hours of instruction. Need-based scholarships are available to qualifying applicants, and you can find out more about everything at learn.fearofpublicshame.com. Will, let's hit that jingle. Hone your craft. Hone your style. Make them laugh. With Audio Fiction 101, you can learn all the tips and tricks from Zach and Sarah. And learn to master five-act plot structure as well. With Gabrielle, it's a smorgasbord of learning. Grab a napkin and you're yearning. Set the table if you're able and have fun. With 101, bring the wow. It's all there. Ask us how with Audio Fiction 101. Learn.fearofpublicshame.com. When you're ready to check out, click the gray text that says have a coupon and enter the code RADIODRAMA, all one word, for 15% off your order. This week, what makes a good DM for audio? What changes when you take a game originally made only to be heard by a handful of players and reformat it for broadcast? How do you manage the dictates of a game that presupposes violence? These are heavy-sounding questions that make it seem like this is a way more serious episode than it is. Prepare yourself for an absolute torrent of bits, because I got Jordan Adika to sit down for an interview. And it's coming your way right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. I had the absolute joy of conducting, and Will had the absolute trial of editing, a thoroughly delightful interview with Jordan Adika, the dungeon master, composer, and sound designer of the actual play podcast Arcs from Atypical Artists. I have interviewed many funny people. Sometimes they tempt me into doing bits with them. Sometimes those bits are nonstop. And what I'm trying to say is that if you end up listening to the extended cut of this interview, you'll hear me singing the theme to Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater with Jordan, which sounds intentionally like the theme to a lost James Bond movie. I feel like that bit from the extended cut kind of carries over into the rest of the interview. I had so much fun with Jordan, and I think you will too, but heads up that this interview contains spoilers for both ARCs and the Adventure Zone, so be advised. Spoilers ahoy! Ding ding! That's your little amuse-bouche of a goof. Now please enjoy the whole dang meal. Folks, I give you Jordan Adika. Jordan Adika, welcome to Radio Drama Revival! Oh, thank you so much, David. So Jordan, until, until recently... Uh, you worked at Patreon in creator relations. Is that how you met Lauren? That is how I met Lauren, yeah. Um, I worked in a <laughs> very archetypally for all things tech. I worked in a lot of different roles that over the years never stopped being less funny and less trite and less silly as a title. Uh, <laughs> it was, yeah, but that's, List them, please. Uh, I, was a, I was in creator relations. Um, yeah. And then I was gradually over time, they got a little bit more formal. So by my end, I was in creator partnerships. And that's when I met Lauren. Uh, it was 
mainly onboarding. That was the thing that I would do. I would meet up with creators that were either interested and wanted to join or were interested and skeptical. And I would just kind of be the biz devy person that got them across the finish line, uh, which makes me sound like a, a, a big game hunter. <laughs> which, uh, I don't miss that. I don't, I don't miss being the suit in the room. Uh, but yeah, that's how we met Lauren initially via Patreon stuff. I was at Patreon 2017, bumped into one another, had a whale of a time. Very possible for us to not meet, something that myself, Brigham, and her constantly have existential nightmares about. Uh, sure. And then, yeah, we, we slowly got to know one another. We would try to stay in touch, despite the fact that at the time I lived in San Francisco and she was down here in LA, where I've, I've now invaded. Um, for a really long time, we just tried to figure out a way to, to stay in contact and have more fun. And so we started, you know, the only way any of us can really make friends, content. Hey, is that is that how you met? How did you meet Stans? Stans worked with me at Patreon in 2016. Got it. Okay. Uh, and then so that's, he, that's sort of the, the through point for all four of you. Yeah. Is Brigham through Lauren and Stans was a coworker. Yeah, more or less. Um, we were all brought together by the combined powers of Jack Conti. He, he he used his his glorious bold brain to pull us into a single space. Uh, but yeah, he Nate was a very good friend of mine. That we we became very good friends very quickly, and then he left Patreon like pretty early on, a good two years before I did, and uh, went to esports, which is is his current vocation. He is a esports manager. I guess people don't know that if they listen to Arcs. We don't talk about it much, right? And then Brigan obviously was was summoned via Lauren. Uh, I actually got to know Brigan. The first time I ever had like an extended conversation with Brigan was over the phone, me in San Francisco, him in LA, talking about the character of Barry. Like we came up with it over the phone. That's then wild. We never spoke again, but we got right off the phone and he we texted different people and then both texted Lauren saying how much we loved the other person. Oh. And uh, then. Nate and Brigan met on mic. <laughs> That's the first time they ever had a conversation. Wow. Was, uh, you ca- you cannot tell. You cannot but, tell. And it's because of uh, Nate's endless, glorious charisma and the fact that Brigan is undislikable. <laughs> I would say medicinally undislikable. Sure. Why, why D&D? Like, what was it about this system that made you say, okay, I think this is best suited for making podcast content? <sighs> Honestly... I think there was a part of me that wanted to dabble in fiction a little more. Uh, I'd been on some other podcasts in the past, but I really enjoyed writing and I really enjoyed doing voices. But but by craft, I didn't really want to invest all that much in making things front to back. I didn't love the idea of scripting something out, shooting it, editing it, and putting it out as a, a web series or its own fiction show, at least at the time. Reason being that I, you know, I was working at Patreon, loved it to pieces, but it was eating up 50 hours of my week. And I needed something that would be really creatively satisfying that I got to do in collaboration with people that I wouldn't normally get to collaborate with who also love fantasy and character creation. I was also wrapping up a very aggressive uh, Adventure Zone binge right before we started. So that was (laughs) a pretty major influencer. In fact, I can tell you the exact moment that I decided it was a and d show. Please. Was, I want to say it's... What is the Groundhog's Day arc in that? Uh, oh, sure. The the Western one in the town. Yeah, the Western the town thing. that I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, the moment they first... Spoilers! The moment they first all die in that sequence and uh-huh. then wake up again and the brothers freak out. That to me was... That created like the mission statement, which I use for arcs now, which is 
this is a D&D show because I want to do the things that only a D&D show could do. That revelation is only half as interesting in any other medium or uh, a, a betrayal is only half a betrayal. There are so many emotions that you can invoke when you're inhabiting a character and you have this voice of God directing the world around you that can't really be directed by anything else. It's so medium specific. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this great book actually called How Games Move Us or How Games Move You. I think it's How Games Move Us. Okay. Wonderful book. Highly recommended. It, it mainly focuses on design aspects of video games, but also pulls on references from board games. And one of the glorious, glorious insights from it is the idea that there are different emotions that can be evoked by different mediums. And to gaming specifically, you have access to guilt and pride. Hmm. Guilt and pride are almost impossible in other mediums. You can sympathize with it. You can get that sense, that that subjective sense of, oh, I've felt good before and I felt bad before. And, oh, no, Steve Rogers, don't get in that bloody plane. It's, oh, it's a big old iceberg. Look out, mate. Whereas in the case of games, you can feel legitimate regret and you can feel legitimate pathos and bathos. And that's just D&D. That's the magic of it. And, man, I'm so glad we did one of the strengths of the show, I feel, is how quickly it accommodates character decisions with the world shifting to acknowledge those changes without ever having seemed to have changed at all. Like, it's it's difficult for me to tell, listening to arcs, what materials were pre-prepared and which were just invented on the fly. It, it, sure. The effect of it is it feels like you've anticipated every character decision and written up supplementary materials to go along with it, like newspaper pages or notes left by characters. Because I've done that stuff as a DM, and it takes me forever. So uh, can you tell me about the level of prep that you do or don't do? Like, are you spinning this stuff off the top of your head? Or, like, what's what's the balance between preparedness and improv? Can we play that clip at my eulogy? Yeah. That's the, that's the nicest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Oh, thanks, Thank David. That's very sweet of you. Um, honestly, it is a constantly shifting river. There, sometimes a session will have so much prepared for it in a format that I will never use again because of that specific context. And sometimes I'll have a shockingly little amount of preparation. And there's, there's, there's always benefits to it. I think the worst sessions I've ever run are sessions where I try and encourage people to experience the cool things that I came up with. Uh, and the best sessions that I've ever run have just largely by luck interacted with all of the pieces that were the most interesting of the things that I prepared, thrown away 80% because I'm never going to come up with something as good as what will be was what will emerge in game. And the rest just being filled by that. Uh, great example is I never designed a dog to be in the tavern right uh, yeah you asked and brigand just said is there a dog there's a, what's that um that axiom about cedars and planters is that it no it's uh, uh pantsers and plotters planters and, and pantsers yeah yeah the, the ten thousand uh, iterations of two p words i am definitely instinctually more of a plotter I, I, I like the idea of things being cohesive and easily quantifiable, you know? That's why I love Google Sheets so much. The idea that I could easily come up with a narrative and then sort of fit the series of events within that narrative always appeals to me on an instinctual level. But the nice thing about D&D is that you just, you cannot guarantee that. And when you're designing a world, or at the very least ideating on that world, when you think of a tavern, 
And you think of the aesthetic of that tavern, you think of the function of that tavern, where it is in the world, the kind of patrons that would be there. And somebody asks you, is there a dog? There is absolutely no reasonable universe where you can say, no, there's not a dog. Of course, there would be a dog in that space. And then Brigham wisely goes, well, I can talk the dog. And then beads of sweat just going down my face. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, you could definitely talk to the dog. I I guess we'll find that. And, you know, it evolved into uh, what I would charitably say is a character that is more loved than me in my real life. (laughs) Man, people people like dog a lot. Dog is so good. It's really... David, I cannot tell you how concerned I am when... I mean, we are probably three sessions ahead of what has come out. And... It, it, every dog is, is as present as he ever is or is he he's present oh. as he ever is and uh, playing a dog, dog especially in action environments and mm-hmm. either having to role play him as somebody that would you know Travis style just rush in or right. be told to do something by, by Brigham is nerve wracking because there is a genuine chance that the dog gets hurt and nobody listens to our podcast anymore right do you you've run some campaigns did you say uh, yeah it's been a long time though do you find that you tend towards that over-preparedness? Absolutely, I do. And and something that I really like about what I perceive from arcs is that you've got something planned, and then the player characters do something entirely orthogonal to what you've got planned, and yet still somehow, without feeling railroady, the plot structure that you had initially intended for them to follow reasserts itself later. So sure. it's not it's not all just like DM fiat, but you <laughs> yeah. are saying, hey, I'm going to introduce a new, I'm going to raise the stakes and introduce a new complicating factor that ushers you back onto the the plot rails. So here's Jackson's bracer and you know or whatever that thing is inside of his neck, and we're going to like continue to accelerate that in order to make sure that you accomplish the task that it's attached to yeah it, it's it's the funniest thing i very rarely get critical comments about the show because it's so good no i never really get critical comments because people are very very nice about it but i actually do encourage getting constructive criticism because i have some bad rpg habits i tend to lean away from from mechanical restrictions because that's just my general habit but sometimes those mechanical cr- restrictions are very important so i'm always trying to trying to balance that out but occasionally i've had people mention that uh Ooh, I nearly said what they were called. Ooh, I mentioned that the masked people, the masked people mm-hmm. were like a in-game system to railroad people back onto the main path. And I cannot express how wrong that is. <laughs> I, that is a... Th- so there are, there are a few factors there. So Fina Odinian, that is, a, that is a character that was very lightly prepared. That's a person that exists in the universe. And she would have been down at the docks, though them going to the docks was not something I prepared for. They went down to the docks. They bumped into Fina Odinian. Stands with some kind of preternatural minority report kind of future site. Used Thieves Cant, which is a thing she could do. And they uh, eventually got invited to stay on her boat. And the boat holds a ton of little Easter eggs as to why it seems so intricately connected to the people with the mask, et cetera, et cetera. Go back and listen, get some extra downloads, buy some merch when Ooh. it comes out. <laughs> uh, but the actual railroading is usually right in between sessions. It's, okay, so they did all of these things and they did not want to follow one of the three narrative paths that I kind of carved out. Right, now I readjust the next session. What I 
prepared early on and just immediately learned was not viable in the best way possible was building a series of events that would tie together. Instead, you can really only build hub worlds. Here is my, you've just arrived in Lonesome and here are the eight options you can possibly do. There's the doctor's office, but if you don't go to the doctor's office, nothing in relation to your braces will happen. And I mean, in Jackson's case, they accelerated it by accelerating it. Like, <laughs> it was that was not something I had written down or something something that I planned in advance. It was a more practical kind of. Well, if they're gonna try and remove it, I know what happens, but surely they won't do that. That would be <laughs> that would be wild, right? Yeah, and that's that's a, a beautiful keystroke on the part of Lauren and uh, Brigan getting to do that, but then also in character consciously choose to keep it secret. That is. That, I mean, that's why we do it. Seriously, that, that right. moments like that, beats like that, that's the stuff where we walk out of the studio and go into the car park and I'm just like jumping up and down. I'm like, oh, I can't believe you did all that stuff. And then, you know, Lauren and Brigham as beautifully, painfully humble people would be like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I, th- I thought we did okay, you know. How do you like to manage scene work and intercutting? Because I noticed that's something you do very well to keep things exciting is when the party's divided, you find good buttons to end each micro scene on and cut back and forth. Oh, like uh, like the boat chase? Like the boat chase. Yeah. How are you? Are you think because I know you have a film degree. Are Has has your background in film studies influenced the way that you think about role playing game experience design? Probably. I mean, on a purely academic level, probably not. That's not certainly not my comfort zone. I was a very <laughs> instinct led film student much to the chagrin of every professor that i had (laughs) but i i i really really like narrative and it doesn't have to be conscious narrative people use narrative as though it is like by design linear but you can you can extend an act you can extend an experience to better facilitate the story that's unfolding in front of you naturally that's why every screenplay that's been worked on for 15 years by a person is the worst thing they've ever written because they can constantly iterate and tweak and move around story events based on their personal changes and personal preferences that's the kind of thing that i do naturally i tend to overcomplicate things so in the case of sequences like that that's when i try and exit dm brain and go into director brain it's more specifically right we're in combat that's an important thing combat can take a very long time and the number one reason it usually does that is because people are given more time to make decisions in combat than they are out of combat which is buck wild you should be right tricky thing about combat i think because it's the most systems heavy part of really any core tabletop RPG game because combat combat is so mechanics and systems heavy it can sometimes feel like that means it should be given the most time that it requires the most focus but the fact that it's so mechanics heavy to me is just emblematic of how manic and confusing combat is like fighting is there's so many factors at play and you can't account for them all at once and because there's so many systems, people tend to internalize it as a video game. Okay, what is the optimal way that I can make my way through this? What is the best possible thing I can do to resolve this, air quotes, puzzle, the puzzle of killing this kobold? Where, for me, it's much more appealing the idea that, no, this is the space where you're going to make the most mistakes. Because the stakes are very, very high, but you're also really dumb and you're not experienced (laughs) in this way and it's okay if you don't understand the implications of something you're going to try because your characters by design don't know how to fight people the one exception being nate who has a lot of DD experience who also plays a character with a lot of fighting experience that's why he's doing suplexes while lauren's driving a boat and and brigand's getting tied up 
Well, and Lauren's also written essays, you know, about like the the costs of characters doing violence, even in in fiction. Yeah. Um, does that play into the way you set up combat encounters? Like, are you thinking about that at all? I think a an unconscious tenant that became a tenant in arcs is the idea that killing is killing. Like, ending a life should hold weight. That is a real event that has ripples upon ripples of water across the world. You cannot end a life without either being legally penalized, morally penalized, uh, uh, stressing late at night over the idea that that masked guard can't feed his family. You know, uh, little pieces like that I find very narratively compelling. And again, as a lifelong and continue to be games as art enthusiast and advocate, there is a trend towards overemphasizing combat as the only way to engage people narratively. And the idea that these characters have to date not actively chosen to kill anyone is really important to me. Part of that was my own preferences. I wanted narrative weight to it. But another part of that was Lauren's ethos. It is like important that we don't just bastardize that process, that we don't just take advantage of those tropes, but we actually treat it with a little bit of respect. Uh, A central tenant at Atypical, I'm, I'm sure she wouldn't mind me talking about this, is with the exception of very specific circumstances, Guns in our shows is a real no-no. Uh, realistic, eight millimeter, bang, just a real, really ethically dubious choice for us. And to date, we have, have not had to do that. But if you check out the, I think it's episode 13, maybe 14, where Lila is introduced, Fiddly Lila. Fiddly mm-hmm. Lila. She has a gun, a rifle type thing, but it has an explicitly sci-fi bent to it. And I, it's such an easy way to reduce the friction of having a potentially traumatic, but at the very least, uh, I don't know, uh, unsettling sound straight in your ear canal. Yeah. Playing a role-playing game with your friends for fun is very different, I think, than playing a role-playing game with your colleagues for an audience. So uh, this is sort of a follow-on to the, the previous question. How do, you, how do you think about ARCs as a, as a producer? Or, or as a director, like you were saying, what what do you cut? What do you what do you keep? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's that's the you know producer cap pragmatist kind of thing, right? Drop away right. all of the nuance and the fun and the magic of it, and just think about is this running the way that it should? That is purely luck. I, I the dynamic that was established between those characters and those performers, and the way that we record was more of an art than a science. We didn't put a lot of time into planning that initially with the first two sessions which covers i think maybe the first five episodes we recorded those completely remotely and you probably can't tell but i could at the very least listening to the raw version i could i could feel as fun as it was a fundamental level of friction that wouldn't have been there otherwise that those little little beats of needing to recall what character i was playing and where i was and not being able to make eye contact with particular players once i moved to la we 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 started recording in my apartment, but eventually once a typical got a studio, we started recording out of there and we have this big table and we just sit around it and I stare in everybody's eyes as I do a voice and it's so much more fun. And ever since we did that, the producer element of it, the optimizing for best possible time, when are people not tired from work and when can people hop on a mic and what kind of moods are people in, that all kind of melted away because now it is just always very fun. Uh, promotion, Promo-wise though, it's, it's a very weird show to market because I'd, I'd say that we are a 
I, I personally, creatively, and I don't even have a solution for this. I welcome one from you. Please, David, please fix this problem for me. <laughs> I sometimes struggle to articulate what ARCs is in relation to its peers in ways that people outside of it, outside of the immediate listenership of D&D podcasts would understand, especially since that's my target audience. I, I want ARCs to exist in a way that showcases what D&D podcasts can be capable of along with... Uh, right. A lot of other leading shows like The Adventure Zone or Join the Party or Critical Role, at least in, in, in recent years. Very kind of subver- subversive uses of the materials and mechanics. I want to encourage that and for people to know that you don't have to be the thing that you think D&D is. It can just fulfill everything that you want and you can drop the pieces you don't like. Uh, but the thing that I sometimes find hard to articulate is how how scripted is it is a question I get a lot. And yeah, really, unless I'm monologuing unless it is like a you enter the place and blah, 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 blah. those right. are really the only scripted portions um what i'll do for characters maybe one day i'll publish a how i because i write them in dropbox paper usually or i, I write them in, in real life human paper maybe i'll publish like a dm notes for an early session that it's kind of the scribblings of a serial killer in some ways but it's <laughs> it, it might be helpful to someone because it is I create what I call beats. So we have a narrative beats for the whole thing. The hub world itself. You're in Lonesome. You're in. Uh, you're, you're in transit. You're wrapping up a fight. You're in the woods. Here is the hub. Here are the five or so directions you could go. And then here are the bullet points of what might be interesting in those areas. And then you add an NPC. You add an item. Anything along those lines. If it is a very specific thing, I do try and include a monologue simply because I don't want it to get lost in the noise and also for my own benefit. I don't want to forget what the thing is I'm trying to describe to them is. So let's say that for an item or walking through a door, but for character dialogue, I really desperately try and stay away from writing anything. I, I right. Bullet points like uh, Dr. Vornikan would be interested in killing and observing the inside of Larkin's brain. For example, that's just like a bullet point. And wouldn't that be funny to play with? Because uh, when you have an exact line written down, even if you choose to ad lib on it, its pace is always going to feel a little off. And I'm sure if I re-listen to the show... Sure, it'll just sound canned. Yeah, right? it'll sound canned. It's like the difference between recording audio fiction all in the same room and recording it remotely and then patching it together. You can absolutely do it with great direction, but it is harder. And it requires a right. very a very different kind of mindset. And I could almost certainly listen back to some episodes and find a line or two where I had written it verbatim and it just feels iffy. It, does, it doesn't feel like me... There, the, it, it doesn't pass correctly. That's a really noticeable thing. If you listen to, or not even listen to the shows, if you play D&D in real life and you can see that uh, your DM maybe has a specific monologue they're supposed to read for you, there's a palpable shift in the atmosphere where everybody like stops for a second. They're like, oh, it's, it's, okay, right. There's a, the game, the game is paused. Now it's time for a cutscene. Sure. I honestly, I, it's something that comes up a lot, especially on, Twitter, which is where I, I say the majority of like aspiring DMs tend to reach out to people that they like. Like uh, I'll see somebody tag me, Eric, uh, uh, Julia, and like a half dozen other one-shot but largely campaign ongoing DMs. And they'll all pop up all in the same feed. And I, for the life of me, never have a categorical response for any of the questions because it's usually what makes like a good DM. And objectively, it's don't, be a no but be a yes and that's very reductive and kind of cliche but that is just a very functional way of having fun in any improvised environment but the other part is i don't know man don't do stuff you don't like 
<laughs> That's, yeah. uh, life hack, don't do the stuff you don't like. Do you not really love combat encounters? Do they feel kind of unengaging, either on a narrative sense or just from a pure gameplay perspective? Cool. Change either the mechanics of combat or reduce the amount of combat in your game or both. Problem solved. There is no gospel Bible to how to run a... In fact, I'm even going to throw D&D as a term away. There is no gospel Bible to of how to make a role-playing game show. You had said in an interlude, I think, that you're not a huge fan of high fantasy as a genre. Can you tell me about why that doesn't click for you? Oh, this, is, this is some gotcha reporting, David. Your words, baby. You got me. Oh, my God, the cops are knocking on my door. <laughs> oh, no. It's the content police. <laughs> I ask it not as a gotcha. I Like, everyone has different responses to different to different. No, genres. I'll have my people talk to your people, Dave. Oh, please. <laughs> no, I mean, no, that, that is correct. I, I don't know what the context was, but yeah, I historically tend to lean towards hybrid fantasy, weird kind mm-hmm. of, which arguably arcs kind of is. It's got that peculiar little sci-fi bent to it. But um, I think with, with arcs, I, after we decided we wanted to make a role-playing game show, we threw around a bunch of either settings or tones or potential characters and things like that. And I think what I always drifted towards was subversion because it's, decreasingly and especially in the <laughs> some episodes that will be coming out in the new year it decreasingly a comedy show but <laughs> it's explicitly kind of a it's a dramedy right it's 60% comedy right. 40% drama ideally that's the, the balance sure. that I want to kind of strike because comedy will always hit harder with context and pathos will always be all the more heartbreaking when you know what a healthy positive funny world looks like I, I like that balance i love barry for that reason that's, that's why that's one of my favorite shows i love thor ragnarok for that reason that has a couple of real emotional beats and it's the result of genuine fun earlier on so as a result of not being the biggest fan generally of that but loving the idea of subverting tropes as kind of our in yeah. I thought I was going to do a sci-fi show. That was what appealed to me the most. I like the setting. I like the idea that we're all jetting around. And I very briefly ran a campaign in San Francisco with that sort of setting, a neo-noir setting. But then, as I remembered what my very vague early on mission statement with ARCS was, even before I knew what it was, it was always called ARCS, bizarrely. I, you know, I'm a branding first kind of guy. Uh, even before we really established a universe, I knew that I wanted it to be, oh, it's that thing you know, but can you imagine if it's this? Oh, it's a door and it has a voice, ooh, temple door, but its riddles aren't very good. Like, that instinctually (laughs) to me I just find very funny. It's a wizard, but he doesn't have a degree, or, you know, that kind of stupid bullshit that you can hear on my show. Uh, Your dumb show that I like very much. Yeah, like, oh, what if I, oh, what if there was a dolphin that smoked weed? Pretty funny, right? (laughs) (laughs) Just the entire party shaking their heads as I cry. That's a BTS shot of arcs. (laughs) I, but I found that, like, as I was preparing the show and as I wrote a very basic outline as to what a sci fi version of the show might look like and what roles they might take on, I realized that the subversions don't hit nearly as hard because there's no point of reference. It's way funnier to get a high fantasy reference point subverted because it's such a not only popular, but in some degrees, very saturated medium, a very saturated genre. There's a ton in every possible medium that touches on high fantasy. So there's so much to play around with. You can make references to dark fantasy, Game of Thrones, Dragon Age, or you can lean far more into Tolkien-esque fantasy. And it's all as compelling and none of it really feels all that dissonant. You can play with it all. As opposed to sci-fi, when I started writing sci-fi sessions, I was like, well, 
I guess a Blade Runner reference is interesting, but it's not really fodder for jokes. It's just a drama. It's it, it, And this is, I should point out, for me. I've listened to some hysterical and extremely beautifully made uh, sci-fi RPG podcasts. It was more in the writing. I just couldn't find things that in a, in a sci-fi world resonated with me as obvious jokes. And when I say jokes, I don't even mean lines and laughs. I also just mean the absurdity of the universe in its design, like the old thimble. It's like the first thing that I ever thought of with arcs. And it's because it's a goblin trader, but he has no whimsy about him. There's no right. <laughs> there's no false foe. Ooh, can you fiddle out what I'm going to do? I'll trick you. Instead, it's much closer to just, I have been doing this job for, <laughs> for a very long time and I don't love it. And I get robbed often. And I would really very much like to switch careers. But at this point, you know, health benefits of being a merchant, already got them. I've got tenure. I've got merchant tenure. I love that mundanity and <laughs> throwing that mundanity in there. Sure. That's, that's the main reason. Something that I appreciate about the show is how you've created all these homebrew systems to accommodate both player style and your own tastes. How are you thinking about homebrew modifications? Like, how do you make this kind of genericized system your own how do you make it jordany coming up with homebrew mechanics i would go as far as to say might be my favorite thing to do in the world <laughs> it is i can tell such a fun i mean i've already kind of hinted at it but i i love video game design theory i, I just find it fascinating uh, both on a psychological level but also just on a puzzle pieces fitting together kind of level it's part of why the whole genre of uh, TTRPG podcasts appeal to me. I like the idea that you can have a fun improv with your friends, but with these weird little uh, tiny mechanics that introduce elements that you couldn't otherwise know about. That just is very me, and it excited me. When we play sessions, we don't stop talking, because <laughs> me, Lauren, and Brigham run a company together, so as much as I'd like to, it's very difficult to ignore them. And Nate, uh, as I say, is still a very good friend of mine so we we talk about our sessions and we talk about how to evolve them and usually what i'll do after the day after a session or just next time i see see my teammates my pals i'll ask them what they want to do more of and early on i would phrase it as like what don't you like like what what is the thing that's bothering you what are, what's the part that you're not having fun with and i realized that that just introduces an element of conflict that is not encouraging <laughs> like people nobody wants to say i just didn't enjoy this part that you worked really hard on instead yeah. Especially since, I mean, people don't really memorize that. People memorize the wholesome pieces. They memorize the events. They memorize the things that makes fan art, right? They memorize those those vignettes. And so I just have started asking t the team after we play, what do you want to do more of? What's a thing you enjoy? And sometimes they give me a motif, like a, a thematic thing. Like, I, I want to do more dramatic stuff. I want to feel more threat. I want to feel more danger. I'm like, Great. And then other times they will give more specific mechanical notes. Like, I find it somewhat tedious to have to think about the best possible spell to do at the best uh, possible time. We haven't implemented them currently, at least in the canon of the episodes that have been released, but I recently kind of did a class overhaul. I'm not sure what I want to pull in or what I want to pull out, but I broke down a, all right, if we were starting the show from scratch and I knew everything I know about these players and also about my own DM style, that's a big reason I change a lot of the, the minutiae. How would I design the game just from scratch? And the biggest thing that changes right out the gate is... I like feats over skills. I like features and descriptions and motivators over specific data-backed actions. Uh, as an example, ask questions later. You mentioned that. Jackson's ability to punch somebody and knock them out 
in one blow, providing it's a weird little surprise attack and he's doing his classic Jackson thing, is this perfect magical storm. I'm going to rephrase that because that was weird. (laughs) Is a perfect thematic storm of the fact that he would have done that in his life, so it makes sense that he would have access to that kind of ability. And it's a really fun way of introducing pandemonium. Like, Jackson's, the best thing that Jackson has ever done to this day, and I, he will never do anything better, and neither will I, in life or in game, is walk up behind the Odinian brothers and try and smack their heads together. That's one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life, because of how straight-faced <laughs> Nate was when he said it. It was just, that was like a crystallizing moment as to who Jackson was as a character, and it's carried through the entire show. Right after we played that game, I just spent like a month or two thinking, how can I just give him a tool that is similar to that that wouldn't stop him from doing it anyway i I don't want to like systemize something that he was already doing it just makes it harder to engage with it but how can i reward that kind of play not with an arbitrary level or hp increase but instead with a a fun catchy silly ability with very specific application that just could be a real game changer and i that's the stuff that i enjoy there's a few for lauren and brigan there's one actually that i'll throw out now this is a Sclusi. Scoop Troop, get out Ooh. your pens. There's Ready. A, <laughs> there's a system that I've been playing around with Barry, where whenever he gets a critical success or a critical failure, he generates a, let's call it an XP point. He gets an XP point for hitting a critical success or a critical failure. He will level up and gain additional abilities or features as that XP stacks, but he's also now incentivized to do wild shit because if he succeeds really well, then great. He gets to do a cool Barry thing. If he fails tragically, at least he got an XP out of it. We're removing that barrier of Brigan as a pragmatist, as somebody playing a game thinking, well, I don't want to get hurt. I don't want to ruin things and allows him to instead lean more, lean more into, wait, no, but I am Barry and he would do that. He would absolutely punch a toilet. He would absolutely try and scale that wall. It, it, I want to unblock while also not uh, pacifying the danger. I do want it to be genuinely yeah. dangerous. I don't want to feel like, <laughs> I, I, honestly, and I've run campaigns like this before arcs, I don't want to feel like I'm uh, I'm being too generous. <laughs> I don't want to give people a ton of yeah. leeway where it's like, I jump, I, I try and block the sword with my eye. And then it's like, okay, well, you lose an <sighs> eye. You don't, like, right before you lose the eye, ah, your Bible was on your eye and it blocked the sword. Like, no, you, nice one, idiot. (laughs) Uh, Oh, man, I don't know how much I can talk about the newer episodes that are coming out, but, well, it's going to be very clear that we, (laughs) there are consequences to actions. That's what I'll say. You know what I mean? What What are we, what are we... What are we doing in this crazy old American night? Well, one of the one of the this is this is the this segues into my question is one of the many things that I love about arcs is the way that it functions as a showcase for your voice acting. It's like a a grand tour of the British Isles and a handful of American accents thrown in too. Uh, I guess my question is, how did you feel when Brigan decided he was going to choose a Scottish accent for Barry Ambrose? Absolutely fucking thrilled <laughs> I, uh, electric I would go so far as to say that was maybe the I think I wept for sure yeah a, a decent chunk yeah so it, it, that was all part of the ongoing conversation and I remember Brigham on that first phone call where we became best friends immediately I remember him offhandedly saying I, I might want to do an accent and I actually generally encourage character voices because it provides a neat 
separation point for the audience where you definitely know who's talking about and doing what in what context helps pull the meta text and the table talk out of the game world itself because uh, right. even i'm guilty of this sometimes if an idea is really strong i'll almost pretend a character did it or vice versa where somebody will like say something really funny as a joke and then i'll say like does your character say that because that would actually be very funny and then you, you know we don't take it out of the recording it's all in the episodes when we do that but ultimately i like that if you hear a jackson voice it is guaranteed audible in the world of Terithia. Like that that just came right. out and it's diegetic and you can hear it. Uh, whereas as Brigand, in Brigand's case, he was all new to the game and I wanted to kind of create this dynamic where he could engage character and out of it. And I mean, Arx has the benefit of having Nate, who's just very naturally charismatic, but then also having Lauren and Brigand, who are not only charismatic, but they're performers. They know what it's like to infuse a voice with agency and timbre and narrative weight. Like they know how to play a scene. And so should we should we before we continue, should we define very quickly what diegesis is? Oh, sure. Before we dive into yeah. this. Yeah. Uh, do you want to do that? Oh, I could I can sure. do that. Uh, dia- like if 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 the voice is diegetic, it means that it occurs within the world of yes. the show. Like it, uh, something di- extra diegetic music, for example, in film is the is the score or the soundtrack. It's something that characters can't yes. hear. But if something is diegetic, then it's something playing on the radio if, that uh, characters can hear. During the bar brawl, there is a little music in the background. In my mind, that bar brawl music is somebody playing a lute, and that would be diegetic music as opposed to the theme song fading out or a tension track coming in near the end or a fight theme happening in an environment where there are no instruments, that would be extra diegetic. And now we've wrapped up everything I learned in film school and I'm not kidding. Hooray! So, okay, so the benefit to to Lauren and Brigham, among many things, is that they are performers in addition to everything else that they are being wonderful, charismatic people, you were saying. Yeah, And, and, and that's honestly, it's very distinct to me, at least, when Larkin is speaking versus when Lauren is speaking. And I think that's a that's a testament to Lauren's tonal shift. She's really able to encounter that, uh, encompass that. Oh, I, what about, oh, I'm nervous about a, a thing, but I'm, I'm brave and I'm going to go get him anyway. That kind of uh, paced enthusiasm slash fear is a really difficult voice to stay in and then fl- flick out of it back to regular Lauren. But she balances it very well. I also think that the character voices themselves provide a nice balance and contrast with the style of the players. Oh, that's a big old helicopter. Sorry, it's my helicopter going over. Oh, ain't that uh, just the way. I mean, hey, that's why we all get into audio fiction, right? The money. Mm-hmm. The money, the helicopters. <laughs> the cash and the babes. <laughs> uh, by which I mean other podcasters that you can just hang out with. <laughs> the amount that those particular players use their character voice is great and indicative of the type of characters they're playing and their natural comfort what they find the most fun to play in game like take nate for example jackson is a sniper he only ever says the perfect things right he he right. jumps in at the right moment with the right kind of thing he would say and if he's got nothing to say he doesn't say anything he doesn't take shots he, right. he one one shot one kill and that's not because every joke has to land or every comment has to land in order for it to be good but it does for jackson that's what his character is he is very precise and apathetic so Nate plays him that way, but Nate is very charismatic and open in game, so he talks table talk very actively. Uh, he also knows a lot about D&D, so if the others have a question, he feels that often, so he's just very active in the space, and he's encouraging of people's roleplay, things like that. In the case of Brigan, Brigan is 
super new to D&D. I guess at this point, not. But <laughs> at a period in time, like all of us, he was new to D&D. And he plays a lot of Barry. He spends a lot of time in that world because Barry right. is also narratively new to the world of adventuring and new to those opportunities and then there's lauren straight in the center where lauren's voice is very similar to larkin but larkin's relative inexperience is where lauren finds that character so she speaks about 50 50 she's in game a lot and she often leads encounters and conversations she's like the de facto pro tag more often than not and then when lauren's out of game it's a very different persona it's it's much more like he has sympathy for larkin than empathy (laughs) Mostly because Larkin is just Lauren at, like, 15. How does Lauren feel about shoes? Is she, like, the, the practice of crafting shoes? Uh, I assume resentful. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I think everyone from her part of New York is, like, a, is like a cobbler. Yeah. Cobbling pizza, Hey, Come on. Hey, hey, I'm walking over here in my shoes. Whoa. I'm cobbling here. This is very offensive and we should stop. Oh, no. I'm cobbling here. Oh, boy. Our West Coast listenership's going up, but our East Coast's going straight down. <laughs> That's actually fine. Uh, have... Um, I, I was wondering about this. What's the... I don't remember this character's name, but it's it's the, the halfling who speaks for Maul most of the time. Ah. Um, the one who's like, oh, that's fucking incredible. And I feel... Is that a is that a Geordie accent? Like, what is that supposed to be? Uh, it, is, it, is a, it is a shot at a Liverpudlian accent. Sorry, a Mancunian accent. Oh, it's, okay. Uh, oh, it's Mancunian. Okay. Uh, man, I'm can safely say that I don't think a lot of Liverpudlians listen to either of our shows, but the ones that do, I'm sorry that I conflated you, you with, with Mancunians. I know that would be infuriating for you, especially on a, a football level. Uh, no, that was a... <laughs> I tell you what, that's probably my... I, I really enjoyed that encounter and I love what came out of it, namely a vape, but I personally... I, I look back on that episode and I think to myself, what the fuck was I doing pairing two new NPCs with... <laughs> An Irish accent and a Mancunian accent together sure. that I was switching back and forth. What a deranged choice that was. I mean, it made it very clear who was speaking. <laughs> it was so many risky close cuts. I mean, the the benefit, I suppose, is that we we stuck a little bit of a, a muted resonance from the armor on the fair zeal. So that, that helped distinguish yeah. in case you were thinking, who, what's happening? Did a third, did an elf come in from Wales? What's going on right now? Yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm here to help you. Oh, my God, it's already bad. <laughs> uh, well, you know, you can stick stuff in me tummy and we'll make a, you know, a thing and you'll you'll hit that vape like Wiz Khalifa. And then the man was like, I like that, kid. The thought on that was, and this happens a lot. Again, this is a lot of the, the my biggest piece of advice for DMs that want to do long form storytelling, long form campaigns is find the broadest macro pieces of your universe and build inwards but not too inwards that is a very confusing statement and i will do my best to explain a lot of what people will do is establish like characters and a universe and roughly a tone that's great excellent first step then as you begin to grow the universe out before you even play a session as you're planning your session the first thing you should do is ask yourself two questions what are the religions of this world and what are the races of this world those, which is a very divisive question in the real world. But the, I suppose species right. might be a better term. Um, who exists where? What doctrine, religious or otherwise, or political or anything, what doctrine do they follow? And where do those doctrines kind of bump into one another? The fair zeals were like a thing that I wrote up in a Word document along with 30 other possible races a while back, and I would just assign them 
like a, a pop culture character that I could use for reference or an accent or a tone or just a bunch of keywords. And the thing, the thing, is, the thing is with the Fair Zeal is that they're a remote island. And to me, that was Ireland. I pictured it as uh, Ireland or kind of a Scandinavian <laughs> green open lands. And I liked that accent. So it made sense to me. And, and that character in particular, I knew was young. So it kind of naturally had to be a young Irish accent. And separately, I'd established that really all of the halflings either live in the south, which is where that right there kind of accent or, you know, the, the posh halfling that got mm-hmm. stuck in a barrel. That's that kind of Dorset. environment. Or if they're from, say, Helmspire or, mm-hmm. or somewhere more northern, somewhere more developed, then they would have that accent. That is just the way they sound. I have a document that tells me, and that was a perfect example of me kind of shooting myself in a foot, but in a way that, you know, creatively, I just didn't want to compromise. It should be just as hard for me to interact with the limits of this universe as it is for the players right like if i oops whoops put a fair zeal and a halfling together (laughs) well you you beans it up this time jordan jordan what delights you about the constraints of using a game system to tell collaborative stories constraints wise i personally love certain (laughs) i love the dread that systems give to players I love the idea that all of a sudden interesting ideas become 10 times as interesting because there is genuine chance that you won't be able to fulfill them. That gives, it gives danger a, a entirely new context, but it also gives fun little things like the cocktail umbrella opening a locked door. That should not have worked. Now, it, within the universe's rules, it could have. I mean, if, if, if you roll a nat 20 and your goal is to jump on top of a cloud, you you just never win. And a nat 20, you do like a cool flip or something. In the case of unlocking that door, that's possible. I mean, it, it is a, it's a slim item on a simple lock with uh, very simple mechanics to it. Yeah, if you were very deftly fingered, you could probably do it. The fact that, the fact that Larkin gets it is hilarious and amazing and 10 times hilarious and amazing because of the chance it wouldn't happen that to me is kind of the magic of systems that's why i I think it's so compelling again you know big shout out fist bump to to game design there are emotions that games evoke because there was a chance that you could have failed even the most linear games infuse you with this mirage that you had some kind of control over what was happening give you the sense that oh if i if i hadn't helped nathan drake jump over that crocodile or whatever i i would have lost him and he then he couldn't have done these fun adventures with his brother who's weird you put it in in uncharted i haven't played the third one actually i i I only played i think i watched a couple of them as supercuts but i am familiar that's uh not a dissimilar experience to playing them, to be quite honest with you. Sure. <laughs> um, real quick, speaking of like dread of mechanics, have you ever played Dread, the tabletop role playing game? Fuck yeah, I have. I. This is so funny. I'm, ah. my, my friend Michael, who was my DM in San Francisco when I used to live there, he introduced me to that game. We played it. I think two weeks before I moved down, it was like a fun little experiment before we officially made the move, and it is so good. And so dangerous. And by dangerous, I don't just mean in-game. I mean as far as planning out an evening with your friends. (laughs) Like, gathering everybody around the hearth to play a game of Dread in the knowledge that at any moment you could just not be allowed to play the game anymore is fascinating. Do Do you want to expand on the mechanics of Dread a little bit? Sure. So Dread is a survival horror game uh, where there are no dice. The only mechanism is that at at the GM's discretion, if a player undertakes an action to determine their success or failure, they have to pull a brick 
from a Jenga tower in the center of the table. Uh, and if the table, if the if the Jenga tower falls over, then that character is removed from the game in sure. in whatever fashion the GM deems appropriate. Honestly, I I find that system, a couple of other early homebrew systems, but especially Dread and Fate, um, Fate Core, I suppose. I find those to be amazing introductory games, which feels to some people unintuitive. It's like, well, if you want people to understand D&D, &D, then you know, get them a, a 101 course, show them all the basic pieces, learn the system while you play. Whereas ultimately, Dread is as much an RPG game as anything else. The end result of yeah. any system should just be that you're engaged in the world and that you're making choices and fixing problems in interesting ways. If that happens to happen because you created a new game system that uses Ritz crackers, great if the result is the same then you have a successful system and in the case of dread that's some of the most distinct memories i have of any rpg game i've played we were in a uh, scenario where we we were a punk band and we were getting chased and uh nate stands was actually in that game and he experienced an extremely gnarly death that i will huh, it was pretty great i was just asking because i think that would make like a great you know season break kind of one-shot thing to release if you had if you did hey here's, well, here's a fun opportunity to put some pressure on the others i want somebody else to run a one-shot i want i want like a Ooh. one member of the party to just run the universe of their choice could even still be in terithia like i i just want them to play around with it because i feel like i am a stronger dm every time i play and i feel like the exact opposite happens as well since i started dming games that i've then played in i feel so much more comfortable and confident because it just you know, it's, it's seeing the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. You get this newfound understanding of what's actually taking place. And you get rid of that imposter syndrome, that assumption that, well, you know, you've got you to be a dungeon master. I am but a dungeon apprentice, you know? Right. What frustrates you about the constraints of using a game system to tell these collaborative stories? I'd say that the, the, the ambiguous notion of constraints doesn't bother me at all. I, I think that function is great but specifically in the reason that over time you'll see us slowly drift away from 5e into more of the arcs homebrew which uses 5e as its obvious jumping off point there are certain roles r-o-l-l-s that i don't find very conducive to the way that we play the game again my only intention ever when playing arcs is presenting interesting problems and hearing interesting solutions and rolling a dice to see which one happens that's that's it that's that's the essence yeah. of story it's it's goal and obstacle and there are a few roles where really if there's something that you can simulate as a person playing the game there i don't like the idea that you ha should have to roll for it example being if you want to do something athletic in game okay makes complete sense to roll for it there is no effective method of simulating that on the table unless it is <laughs> and miming the action and how effectively you do it you get bonus advantage actually that's a great idea let me write that down <laughs> the unless it is that kind of function honestly i mean i i can already hear purist pitchforks outside my my apartment i don't love most charisma roles i i think they work within okay. a mechanical set like if they're attached to spells or they're attached to a very specific ask or saving throw or something like that but generally if it's within like if it's within the social practices of a given character let's take barry for example if barry is doing his regular voice and he's trying to convince someone to give him a little extra money 
for a service. I'm like, hey, give me, give me five extra gold. Barry, aka Brigand's ability to present that in a way that they think will convince the character that I am in that moment inhabiting should be the determining factor as to whether or not they do it. I understand why that's not usually very scalable, because if you have a thousand possible encounterable NPCs out of nowhere, then you can't think up a rich history for each of them and decide whether or not they their father was stingy with money so that they're skeptical about giving it away or if they don't have a 401k so they're saving up you know whatever but i yeah we have done some but usually if people listen back it's usually in the case where there was some out of line thing they were attempting to do like explicitly they're doing a different style of they're being overly confident from the way they would normally be or Usually I let those choices play into the, the difficulty check, but in general, I, I don't want to bog down the pace of a conversation with uh, asinine roles here and there, because it's not going to... I also don't want to be yeah. in the position as a role player myself to have to say, like, all right, I'm Fiddle D. Lila, and you came up to her and you said, like, I love your wings, you're the best person I've ever seen in my life, and you are completely sincere, and you maybe are saying it in order to, I don't know, I get a go with her gun or something you say that and she just goes well roll a dice and I'll see if I like what you said <laughs> like, I know what she'll be sure. like and no matter how good a role is if they walk up to her and say wow you sure are smart for such a short person <laughs> it's like no it just doesn't work there's no no amount of rolling that will make you successful so that's the only time that I generally don't love the restrictions but I'll be honest with you Baby, I love rules. <laughs> I love rules. What what sort of music do you like to listen to, and how does it factor into the music that you've created for the show? Because I feel like there's some down-tempo stuff. Like, I felt like I was listening to Beta Band for a little bit in some of the pieces that you did. So Here's the thing with Arx. This is like a, I don't know if I've ever talked about this anywhere before. So Arx exists for a couple of reasons. There was that one initial reason of... I have these friends and they're creators and I want to do more creative stuff and Nate's here and we like D&D &D and, you know, that perfect storm, that lightning all hitting at once. And then there's the other side of it, which is that I had been making music. I'd learned to make music about a year prior to us starting the show, so a couple of years back now, and I was really getting into it. I'd learned piano specifically for it. Still very basic piano, but, you know, an understanding of music theory. I'd done a little, little Udemy course, getting my brain moving. And I really liked making I'll say orchestral pieces. I don't necessarily mean with an orchestra, but with that kind of uh, down-tempo pace and also function. I like making stems that can loop in, in a game or a movie. That just appealed to me. I really enjoyed making that kind of stuff, and I wanted something to do with it. <laughs> like, was, I wanted a place to put it, a thing that it was valuable in, and I even reached out to some other D&D shows. I was like, hey, do you want to use this music? And some of them they did, and I just never followed up on those conversations, but I wanted something to do with it. So as the show has gone on, my least favorite tracks in the show are the ones that I made really, really early on and then realized, you know, episode 15, I was like, yeah, that would work really well. That I could write another new song for this goddamn episode or I could just use the one I wrote like 12 months ago. And I listen to a lot of OSTs, a lot of original soundtracks from games and movies. That's kind of a comfort zone for me. I, it's a very active process, though. If I'm listening to that, okay. it's not while I'm doing something else. It's while I'm in a car or, or taking a nap even on occasion, or stationary. It's what I listen to the most when I fly, for example. I find that to be a very rejuvenating kind of listen. It's act it activates all the parts of my brain that I want activated no matter the time, and then it also keeps dormant the things that I like to keep dormant. It's a very meditative, no matter what the soundtrack is, thing, but it's also very 
challenging and exciting. Often I'll listen to, like, say, the Binding of Isaac soundtrack, for example, is like a huge influence on everything arcs-wise, music-wise. Same goes for basically anything Dar- Danny Baranowski's ever been a writer on. Um, and the same applies to... Crypt of the Necrodancer. Crypt of the Necrodancer. Oh, oh, you mean uh, Banger 2019, Banger 2018, uh-huh. Banger 2017? A portable oh. Switch version, Banger. Man, that's so good. Let's just scream about that for a while. <laughs> I Yeah, it, it, a lot of stuff like that. And then outside of that, I like really strange underground hip-hop and uh, anti-pop kind of stuff. Anti-pop is like a dumb phrase that's been coined by Spotify primarily. It's not... I love pop music. Nothing wrong with that. It's just... It means indie pop. It's it's a stupid... I see. Uh, but yeah, like a, like a Joji or uh, Rina Samoyama. Uh, just anything that's genre mixy and also okay. constructed in a way that I like sitting and thinking about how I could implement it. That's that's most commonly the thing that jumps out for me. Also, if I just want to cool. feel good, synthwave every single time. That's that's totally my comfort mm-hmm. zone. If it's I don't want lyrics, I just want some some pumping tunes. Synthwave every single time. You should listen to Hong Kong Express if you haven't tried Hong Kong I Express yet. Cracking my phone in half to get to Spotify fast enough. <laughs> uh, I wonder if it's on Spotify. It, it will be. Um, it better be nice. David okay uh, I've I've reached sort of the end of my questions I've got two fun questions for you so real quick Patreon supporter Katie writes if all condiments were to be eliminated from the world and you can only save one what would it be and that includes both sweet and savory condiments I get one choice one choice now can I assume that all recipes that use condiments implicitly like the recipe requires that condiment now are still cooked but without the condiment or are they just, they just gone? I mean, knowledge of those recipes exists, but let's say the world's stock of Heinz ketchup disappears. Oh, what a miserable future. I would so much wor- <laughs> so much rather that we never knew, you know, that it was it was wiped from our mind. It's, it's like No, it's not, it's not the film yesterday, but for Branston Pickle. <laughs> oh, no. It's like... <laughs> yeah, I get struck by lightning and there's only A1 sauce when I wake up. <laughs> uh, I, you know, honestly, as basic as it might make me, I feel like ketchup has the most versatility. Very pragmatic choice. I think of all the things that I like that I would be willing to... Wait, actually, important question. Are, mm. I mean, are we talking about every conceivable sauce? Like, is sweet and sour every, sauce like, just gone? Yeah, just every bottled sauce. I think it's unreasonable to think that someone couldn't recreate all of the other things from scratch if you wanted to. You know what? No. And you know what? It's garlic aioli. Okay. It's garlic aioli. Garlic aioli. I'll eat that stuff right out the tub like Ben and Jerry's. (laughs) No problem with that at all. It works for some savory. It works for a lot of savory things. It might even work for some sweet things if you want to get very avant-garde. But as somebody that uh, lives predominantly off French fries, garlic aioli would be very important. Thank you. Final question. If you could be any kind of dragon, what would your breath weapon be? Content. You would just breathe ten? Yeah, I would I would fire out a torrent of MP3s. And mm. there would be little USBs available for those that you want to use hardware, but otherwise it would just be available uh-huh. via airdrop. <laughs> if your laptop was nearby, it just blink appear. Any AirPods in the near vicinity would begin playing. <laughs> and of course, I should mention, I am a dragon. But I still work in podcasting. <laughs> yeah. still, I have a professional capacity. I wear a little tie. Float, it flutters down as I fly. Regular human-sized tie. It really doesn't fit particularly well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a little saddle on my back. That's where Brigham and Lauren ride. <laughs> we, 
so much easier to get to podcast does, movement, you know? Where does Nate go? Do you just cradle him in your uh, arms? He's in my mouth. <laughs> oh, okay. he, he's in my stomach dissolving. I ate him a long time ago. Got it. Uh, yeah. But okay. I'm, I'm, I'm firing his podcast, Esportsmanlike Conduct, out of my mouth. So, you know. Little promo at the Very same time. <laughs> a podcast made by the late Nathan Stans is, is what it's now called. Yeah, I'd, I'd spew content. How about you? What do you What do you want to spew out your mouth? Uh, well, one time I invented a dragon that was a ham breathing dragon. That sounds very practical. I feel like <laughs> that would go very well with garlic aioli. Mm-hmm. Dude, you and me, David, will conquer the world. Yeah, unstoppable. Jordan, I am out of questions. Oh, uh, do you have anything that you would like to discuss that I didn't bring up? Any questions for me? I have a question for you. Yeah. With this show, and with your general interest in the in the world of audio fiction and audio n- nonfiction, I suppose, too, do you find that the trend is towards things that you personally are very excited about, be that in genre or in talent that's generally attached to things or style of show or tone of show do you feel like you as an audience member is just constantly getting new cool stuff or do you feel like you're having to hunt down the things that you really enjoy it's a complicated question because i'm a curator right and so i think part of what the team and i do is that we are we are on the hunt for things to present to other listeners um i i do think that it's getting easier and easier to have wonderful stuff fall into our laps. I agree. Um, I would, I, I would still like to see a greater diversity of genres and creators. I do feel that speculative fiction is still very heavily represented in a way that historical fiction or straight dramas or romance sure. is not in this medium. Um, but I, I do think that there's some really like, heartening steps being made. I, uh, we have this long list of projects uh, for Atypical, not for Arcs, obviously. If people, I, people, I suppose, a lot of people don't know what that is. Atypical Artists is the, the podcast, audio fiction podcast production company that me and Lauren and Brigham founded. There's a big Asana project called the uh, the Brainstream that's now been renamed The Talent Show, the team, the Teen Talent Show, which is just filled front to back with like what do we want to make? Is it a specific IP that we want to get in that we can adapt into something? Or is it just an actor that we want to work with or a genre we want to work with or a specific pitch mm-hmm. broken down to, to the bare bones? The one that we constantly have in there that we're always just eyeing silently in the background is rom-com. That is just such a... Mm. It's such a vibrant idea. That's the way it, it always feels to me. It hits me and like all the colors in the room become more saturated. And I was like, oh, obviously. And it would, you would lose nothing in the translation to audio. It would all be there and it would feel just as compelling and exciting. And you could absorb it as a serial as opposed to those, those feature length things on, on Netflix that are usually based around Christmas. Yeah. You, I mean, there's, there's a, there are people in Los Angeles right now. Um, I think Lauren probably, I don't know if you know Shanae Howard or Ashley Quatch and Paula Deming, but there there are folks in LA making audio fiction romantic comedies right now that are yeah. like fantastic. I, it's really with. exciting. I mean, I could, this is probably fine to say. Uh, we, yeah, we, 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 we've chatted to some people that really want to do that. And it kind of excites me because the idea that awesome you can, I mean, the most common thing, I'm sure you've experienced this t- tenfold is 
explaining the function of audio fiction to people after recontextualizing it inside of podcasting. Like, oh, you, you mean that thing with Joe Rogan? Like, I, I guess technically, but it, it has these pieces over here instead. Sort of, yeah. like, yeah, does that guy eat elk meat, right? And you're like, okay, I just want to talk about, <laughs> hold on. Explaining that and then within that explaining what the medium can and cannot do is very tricky to people that have not listened to it because the assumption, not an unreasonable one, is, well, how would you present action and then how would you present a rom-com if I can't see faces or how would you even present comedy in general what's the tone where do we go and it's really there's as much fluid fluidity as anything else you just have to play around with the pieces Jordan thank you so much for for coming on this was absolutely fantastic this was so fun David thank you, you. are a delight and a half thank you for having me you're a whole delight you're 100% of a delight oh snap that's like half of what I said plus 10 no, it's not math is bad <laughs> oh wow 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 gotcha Wow, wow, what a guy. What a fabulous time. Please come back, Jordan. That was ridiculous. I'm going to keep this brief because Will is going to New Jersey this weekend and I don't want to keep him. So give us hot bugs on Patreon. Buy shit from our store. Meanwhile, here it is, my lovelies, your moment of Will. That's right, listener. I am going to New Jersey and I'm going to see Anne and we're going to hug. I'm very excited. So last episode, I asked you about what celebrity has turned their D&D campaign into a movie. And if you didn't know, this is Vin Diesel. Yes, big ol' strong boy Vin Diesel also really loves D&D, and I sure can't blame him. He turned the story of his D&D character into a film called The Last Witch Hunter. Haven't heard of it? That's okay. Most people haven't. Apparently, it was not very good. But I really love this knowledge that he is just a good, tall, beefy D&D man. Like all of us, aspire to be. Yeah. I stand by that one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And hey, listener, you're my favorite big, beefy D&D person of my heart. Okay, bye. And now, let us sound the traditional end-of-episode gong, followed by the sound of a plane taking off because Valence is launching this weekend. Holy shit! Everyone subscribe to Valence. I'm so proud of my friends. The sound of that gong and of that aerial plane tell me it's time for the credits. This podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C., which is the unceded territory of the Piscataway Indian Nation, the Piscataway Kanoi Tribe, the Pamunkey people, and the Nanticoke people. If you live in the Americas, Australia, or New Zealand, you can learn more about the native, First Nations, or indigenous heritage of your area by visiting whose.land. Our theme music is Danger Diggy Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our social media manager is Ann Baird, of whom I am also exceedingly proud. Good luck with the launch this weekend. Our submissions editors are Elena Fernandez-Collins and Rashika Rao. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouch. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. <laughs>